just had COVID. So was nervous about both of them. They're 71. Um, my dad's the one that's immunocompromised. Um, he, has, he has heart problems, but he's doing fine. So it's a, it, you know how it's been, because you guys have been around for watching this thing. It's Russian roulette. So there's no rhyme. There doesn't seem to be a lot of rhyme or reason why certain people, it, it gets them, and other people, they do okay. But, um, yeah. Sorry, I have a question. I was looking the other day at the different assignments, and the latest assignment, or the, the assignment we have, the last one that I see, was for February 18th. Yeah, I haven't finished the okay. schedule. I need to push out a few more weeks for you. Okay. I'll try to do that this week. Gotcha. Yeah, there's more coming. I think I only have like through week seven or eight on there so far. Okay. So yeah, there'll be there'll be there'll be the the eight case studies total, and then the eight quizzes. Okay. Good. So for assignments, that's what that's basically it, and it, other than the main street project that you're working on as a group, and then you have the three tests and participation. Wait, so. you said we only have eight case studies? You have, well, you have 16 case studies, but they're divided up by eight write-ups and eight quizzes. So, you got, we're getting the rhythm of it now? <laughs> Brother Rose, you're the, I, you know, I told you, I went away from, I used to have the 16. You did a write-up for 16 of them. And I, I just, over the years, thought that was a lot. So I, that's why I alternate. Yeah. Well, you guys are you guys are doing it now, and you know it probably feels like a lot just doing half of them. So we used to do sixteen write-ups. But okay, I think in, real quick on the cases. I think in general people are doing well. Um, you know, the two tips are make sure you follow the directions, and then actually answer the questions. It seems obvious, right? You know. Yeah. So we have the first one graded already. The first one's the first one's graded. Yes, but there's four pending, three or four pending. Did some come in late? I didn't turn anything in late. I just have them pending for grades still. That's weird. Instructor has not posted this grade. For one. No, no, no. Like for two. Oh no, yeah. No, they're not they're not totally finalized. Okay. Yeah, so so one's in, three and five are basically done. I need to go I need to look at them. And then those will come in. And yeah, seven hasn't, we haven't started grade seven yet. Because it's just like, when you put the email about how one went, I'm like, okay, that's great. No, Byron did three, five, and all that after. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, he was, and he was actually, if I would have graded one, you would have done worse as a class. Yeah, he actually didn't do what I told him to do. And he took it a little easy on you guys on, because you were supposed to lose like a point for, things wrong that you didn't follow in the instructions and on some of them he was like taking off 0.25 and hardly taking off anything so and then I think he was a little harder on these on these next two but I haven't looked at them yet okay. so if I feel like he was way too hard I'll upgrade it okay. um, but yeah follow the directions actually you know if you if you it's really simple just follow the directions and actually put a little thought and effort into the into the answering the questions and it's a 10 or a 9.5, right? So, did, was there another question about that? Yeah. Um, yeah, this one question I got um, on my first one, he just commented like double spacing between questions. I yes. One space, do you want two spaces? No, you don't. No. Do 
you want a an actual level space. Okay, so yeah. just put one space. So all you have to do is, so it, look like, so like it would look like a double space in a regular paper. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you want to do. And, and I think he sent out some instructions on how to do that. If you just literally put enter one time and then go on to your next question, it, it would be double spaced. Okay, what if I did that? Should I just email him? Because I did it in my paper, but he dumped me. Yeah, if you, if you no, email me. Okay. Yeah, because then I can go look at it and say, yeah, actually you didn't double space or yes, you did. So, yeah, if you have a, if you have a question about like something, something look weird on the grade, let me know and I'll go look at it closer. Other thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is random. I was just really curious. What's the C with the arrow coming out of it on there? What is that? The C with the it's arrow? Like, it's like, the, it's right above the question mark. <laughs> like, what's it for? What does it do? The C on the, what, on the, the top? Blue, on the blue it's on the like side. Thing. Oh, this? Yeah, no, at the bottom. <laughs> that oh. one. Oh, that's the commons. Oh. So if you go into that. So this, this lets us get into other people's classes and stuff. Or like, in, get information from like, others. You see there's like, even high school stuff in here. So this is all Canvas. Like the big Canvas website, basically. So. All right. The commons was where you have lunch. Okay. Um, extra credit. So remember, there is extra credit. So that's an easy way to upgrade your, you know, you missed a couple points on a case study or a quiz or something like that. You can make that up. All right. So we are through the material for test one. We're on test two material. And I missed Monday. So basically, I have four things to talk about. I'm definitely going to talk about eight theory reading and eight case. That's the plan. And then if if we have time, I know I talked to that. I said I might not get to case nine, but I'd probably rather do case nine, and and let you, let the book do the job for the theory reading nine. So that that's what I'll do. If 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 uh, I might be able to get through all of it, but probably not. Does any or do we have any comm majors in here? anybody take anybody take the comm like one hundred one or one hundred two class? Oh, really? That's interesting. I always usually have a, somebody. You took it? I did it ages ago. Yeah, well, the reading's basically COM 100, right? So, okay. Everybody read the right case? The move organization for the case? Okay, before we get to that, if you didn't, go back and, go back and read it. It's really interesting. Let's talk, we're going to talk about the Lindblom theory reading on decision making. All right? So again, all the all the theory readings go along either confirming or contradicting the the case. And you guys can tell me here in a minute if you thought the move organization case was bad successive limited comparisons or bad rational comprehensive model. Because I think on this, on this one it might be a little bit of both, right? It, you could lean one way or the other with that with the answer to that. Okay, so the theory reading is about these two types of decision making. What is the first one's rational, comprehensive model of decision making, right? Or the or the root method, right? What what can somebody tell me? What let's just kind of get some factors of what that is. What is rational, comprehensive model? You guys read this for Monday. It's really easy. You guys do these kinds of decision making all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so there's ranking. Okay, there's ranking, there's optimization. So if we're trying to solve some kind of a problem, whether it's a personal, and I'll give you a little silly personal example here in a second, or, or a business case or a school thing, we're, we're sitting down, we're analyzing the information, we have, some, we have probably some extra time, we're doing some ranking of alternatives and outcomes, and then what do we do out of that? We choose the, the optimal choice. Do we do that kind of decision-making all the time? Yes. Yes, we do. Are there any, any, other, uh, any other thoughts on rational comprehensive? The book says this is kind of the classical model of public administration, right? You form the possible alternatives, and you choose probably one of the top, if not the top, maybe the top, the second one or the third one or something like that, right? Um, it's comprehensive because you... Look, are looking at all the alternatives, you have lots of information on all of that. Okay, so what is successive limited comparisons or branch method? The book says it's the real way we make decisions in public administration. Yeah? Is that like incremental? Yeah, so it's incremental. That's the key word for that one. It's not, it's not saying that we probably don't also have a plan, but that things are in our, in our lives, in our jobs, when we make decisions in, in public administration, there's things that happen that we didn't anticipate. That we don't always have all the information. There's things like emergencies or something happens in the day that we didn't expect. And when those things come that we didn't expect, we've got to make a decision and then make another decision as we move kind of down the path of, of what, the outcome. Other thoughts on successive limited comparisons? Yeah. Yeah, and maybe yeah, and maybe you maybe you have, you know, I like I do it in my job. So you know, I've dealt with students for a lot of years on a lot of different subjects, and I these are common things that I, I deal with on a daily basis now, and I take those experiences to help me kind of construct. You know, if somebody comes to me and they're emotional about something, I probably dealt with an emotional student before, but I didn't necessarily anticipate that student coming to me today. So I, yeah, I think that makes sense. Your past experiences. And you're kind of a gut instinct and, and all that. And that you can't anticipate these things and all the, you can't anticipate all the alternatives in a, in a day when you're, when you're in, trying to make decisions. It's very pragmatic. You, you try to kind of optimize your decisions. So you, the, the book talks about satisfying. So you make, you make the best decision at the time given the limited information that you have, right? And then you move on to the next decision. Um, you make compromises. Your, your decisions get mixed up with other goals. You do establish an objective. You do probably doing some rational, like I said, but it quickly gets compromised. Okay, so any other thoughts on those two? Do you guys, do you guys see that in kind of in your decision making that you got? Does anybody feel like they're, they lean, who feels like they're more rational, comprehensive model? There's not a right answer here. Who feels like they're a little more successive limited comparisons? I definitely like successive. I try to, I, so both models are important and we need both of them. So you should be doing rational, comprehensive model in public administration. But 
you are going to have to make successive limited comparisons too, right? So I think if you lean one way or the other, you try to make up for it by doing a little bit more of the, being better at successive limited comparisons if you're rational or vice versa. So I know I'm kind of, kind of the successive limited comparisons branch method. It would be helpful to me to do a little bit more rational, comprehensive planning and thinking through. And then there's sometimes there's circumstances where the rational comprehensive model fits better and circumstances where the successive limited comparisons works better, right? So if I have lots of time and all the information and, and unlimited resources and all that stuff, then I probably ought to do rational, right? Okay, do you want to hear my silly little example that I've been using for years? So dating. There's a lot of dating that happens at BYU-Idaho. She's shaking her head. This is a, it's, a, it's, a dating, it's a dating university for sure. Rational, comprehensive, you know, if you do this, you don't, you don't have to admit it. Rational, comprehensive model would be, and you're trying to find a spouse, right? And rational, so rational, comprehensive would be making a big, long list of all the qualities that you're looking for in a, in a, in a significant other. And, you know, from the looks maybe to career to personality to all those things, and then taking that and doing your dating and trying to match somebody up to the list, right? Does that, is that rational, comprehensive model? Yeah. Successive limited comparisons would be, I'm just going to date and, and kind of play it by ear and see who I like and see who I'm kind of attracted to and who, whose personality I like. And then if it doesn't work out with one person, I move on to the next. And, and that's how I go about finding a spouse. Okay. So silly little example, but I think it kind of works for both. Um, the truth is when we date, thank goodness I'm not dating anymore. <laughs> I hated dating. I told, well, I, I was trying to say it. Oh, you're in senior seminar. I was talking about this in senior seminar, and I said it the wrong way, and they all think I'm conceited now. <laughs> I wasn't saying that I had lots of girlfriends. What I was saying was I, like, I, I, was, I much preferred going from girlfriend to girlfriend rather than staying in the dating scene. That's what I was trying to say. Um, but it came out wrong. They're like, Brother Rose with all the girlfriends. Um, you know, I think we do a little bit of both. I think whether we put it on a piece of paper, like who we're, and I think that's fine. I mean, what... What's more important than a spouse? There isn't a more important decision that you'll make in your entire life. There really isn't. No pressure. So if you want to put that in your journal and write that out and, and then look for the values that you're looking for, I think that's great. I didn't do it that way, but even though I didn't, I still had it in my head. What is the type of person? I'm an introvert. I know I, know I needed an extrovert. I got one. I dated blondes. Blondes are great, but I prefer brunettes. I married a brunette. Short girls are great. I dated short girls, but I'm a tall guy, and I couldn't, I didn't see myself with a super short girl. I dated a girl that's a little higher than, I married a girl that's a little higher than average, right? So, you know, whether you put that on paper or you're, you know, subconsciously kind of thinking about it, we're, we, we all do a little bit of that, and then you get out there and you date and find the person that you're going to marry. So... I think it's a useful kind of example, but um, any other thoughts on these two decision-making methods? Did I just ruin dating for everyone? No, I made it better. It was already ru- no mutual. Ru- mutual ruined it. Facts. Mutual already ruined it. So that's why I'm giving up on mutual.
Hey, a lot of great relationships have been made at this university, so that will continue. But um, I've had actually two marriage proposals in my classes. What? Tell us everything. Well, I'll tell you real quick though. First one, the first one was funny because it was it was my terrorism class. (laughs) Yeah, and they had met in there, so it was kind it was meaningful to them. And the funny thing is, he's not even he's he was a political science major and he's a dentist now. But um, he he came to me and he said, "Hey, since we met in the class, we really love your class, and I want to propose in your class." I'm like, "Okay." He's like, I got this little PowerPoint thing, and I just wanted you to show it at the end of class. I'm like, okay. So the funny part about it was I like, seriously just got done showing like kind of a violent video. And I, I said, class, I've got one more thing. And I pulled up the proposal, and he got down on one knee, and it was pretty cool. Yeah. So, All right. So let's talk about move real quick. So what's happen- what happens in that? What's going on in the move? Who are our players in the move case? Yeah. John Africa. Yeah, John Africa yeah. and, the, and all the other Africa folks. So they took on this name as part of the group name, right? For their last name. Can, what, what kind of a group? Well, they're um, kind of an extreme group. Yes. Yeah. Um, they're kind of being a louder in their neighborhood. Yeah, they're all about like nature and like, yeah. like kind of getting back to the, to their roots and um, very anti kind of establishment. Um, it's a fun one to read about. In my terrorism class, we do a lot of like right wing. Well, right wing is kind of the cool terrorism group for domestic terrorism right now, right? It's fun to it's fun to have a case where there are leftist groups. This is a good example of a, of a leftist, kind of anarchist type group, right? So they're interesting. I, I definitely think they're a terrorist group. Uh, that's fair to call them that. Um, and they're causing some disturbances in the neighborhood, and they've had some historical run-ins with the police. So you have the police as a big player in the case. You have Mayor Good, police commissioner, and then this group, basically, right? And ultimately, there's a... Uh, there's a confrontation at the, they live in this big compound and a bunch of row, kind of row houses in Philadelphia. <clears throat> there's a confrontation and the police literally, you know, drop a bomb, right? It starts the place on fire and not everybody makes it out and some people die and it's a big, big to do and, and all that. So it, it reminds me a lot of, if you're familiar with the Waco case that used to be in an old edition of this book. But very similar to that. Um, so, the, so obviously the case is about decision making because that was the theory reading. What can somebody tell me? What was the tell me about the mayor's background? Because it's really he's kind of the focus. Uh, he's ultimately the one that helps decide. Um, I was going to say that uh, politically he was really um, detailed. Really wanted to be like participating in a bunch of different things. Making Okay, what else about the mayor? Yeah. He was pacifist. He was a pacifist, so that's part of it. So he, so racially, he's he he is one of the group, right? He's not in their group, but he's black, right? And he's also a pacifist, which um, is interesting too. And so, 
the the book, and I, I think they're right. The book, kind of you know, playing internal psychology, says that he fails to make a prompt decision that they call defensive avoidance because he identifies closely with the group, right? Is that what that's what that is what the case is saying, right? What is defensive avoidance? Yeah. Yeah, you don't make, you stall, you don't make a decision because, um, especially when decisions are highly emotional or you, you identify, you know, I feel, I feel this like with, with family members, right? Whether it's your own kids or a spouse or, you know, I'm going through this, you know, I've been going through this thing with my brother who left the church. It's been really hard. And, you know, when things are highly emotional, you want to, I, at least I, can, I feel that defensive avoidance of, hey, I can just kick this down the road and I don't have to deal with it, right? Um, because you're, you're either worried because you're so close to it or you're worried you'll be emotional about it or you'll say the wrong thing or you'll make the wrong decision. You guys have felt that in your life before? That's defensive avoidance. And it's even harder when it's some, somebody you care about or something you care about or you identify. You know, if, you're, if you don't identify as much, it's a little easier to kind of step back and Say, hey, I'm just going to make a decision. Yeah? Doesn't it involve, like, actually, so he would actually do things um, to make it look like he was Yeah. And you, yeah. Like, he would talk to members of that group. Like, he would meet with them, but you wouldn't actually make a decision. About yes. That. You may be, yeah, you may be, that's a good, that's a good addition to, to thinking about this. You may be doing some things, but it's not like, you're not really trying to solve. You're, you're stalling, Right. Because you're not sure quite what to do, or and maybe you know, like I said, it's emotional, but maybe you just don't know um, the right thing to do, and you sort of go down that path. Does anybody it may have an example or a thought on this? Yeah. Well, like what I thought about is like um, how we procrastinate. Yes. Because a lot of like the psychological factor behind procrastination is exactly that. You right. Want to avoid those negative feelings that come with doing homework going to bed on time or whatever it is like there is something that we fear and we don't want to like feel those feelings so then we completely avoid it so just kind of make yeah sense, like that's like on a larger scale for like every day in our life like we yes very good and, th- and this case is about i mean this comes from like this case is about psychology and decision making so it's even it's even worse for you know there are gosh 40 people in this room there's probably a, there's a quarter of us that have mental illness. And if you have a mental illness, now you just add that on to like these tendencies that everybody has and it, you, it makes it even harder sometimes to make decisions, right? Because if you have anxiety or depression or obsessive convulsive disorder, another kind of mental illness, and then those kinds of things factor into, you have to work through that stuff too a lot of times, whether it's at work or home or other things like that. Um, so I think it makes decision-making really hard. As somebody who's had anxiety his whole life, I, I have to, you know, I have to realize that I, I have anxiety and that it can affect my decision making, right? And so I have to be able to, I have to process that and work through that. And if it's, if it's a highly emotional thing and I feel like I'm, my anxiety's taking over, I have to just chill out, <laughs> take some time, and then come back to it when I'm feeling stable and ready to make because if i if i hurry and make a rash decision 
Um, you know, it probably won't go the way that I want it to, to, to go. I had a notoriously bad temper as a child and teenager, which served me very well in sports, um, but doesn't serve you very well in life. So I had to learn how to kind of tame that. It probably has a lot to do with my anxiety as well. But so, so we have to be aware of kind of internally who we are. It's, you know, for Mayor Good, it was identifying with this group. Um, for, for other of us, it's, you know, the circumstances, our personality, and those types of things as well. So other thoughts before we get to kind of wrapping this? Yeah. I just noticed something as well. Like, so he was in the military. Yes. And he was like head of like a, of the military police too. Yes. I think that he would be more involved in like police things. Yeah. But so he had that side of it. He had the, that in relation with the police force. Yeah. Well, this is interesting, too, because, the, you know, military folks and, you know, I love my, I, you can tell, you can tell two things that, on this campus. You can tell who the return missionaries are. They stick out like a sore thumb. And you can tell who's in the military. They also stick out like a sore thumb. Um, and so military folks are very disciplined, very good at decision making. They're trained to do it. They're very, they try to be unemotional. So it's interesting that he had that background, but still kind of suffered from the emotional issues as mayor in this case. Um, that's it. That's, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. So he goes, so the second part of this is you, you, you avoid, you avoid, you avoid, and then you go to the other term, hypervigilance. What's hypervigilance? Yeah. You stay, you, you, the pressure has built so for so long and you've been avoiding, avoiding, avoiding that you make a rash decision that's probably not the best decision in the heat of the moment. And uh, that's what the case is saying that the mayor does. Do you guys kind of see that? You put it off, you put it off, you put it off, and then you do something that you shouldn't have done. Rather than taking that time to kind of work through the decision-making process and thinking about how you're going to make the decision, you just you avoid and then, and then make a rash decision. On like a much smaller scale, but I definitely did that this week with my laundry. I was, <laughs> and then I was like, I'm so sick of this hanging on my head, and I put it in the washer at like 11 p.m. and then I couldn't fall asleep because the washer was loud. Oh, I thought you were gonna say you turned everything pink or something. Oh, that's <laughs> what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like he, the mayor, did continue. So I forgot the term you just called it. Did, so you have defensive avoidance first, and then hypervigilance. Yeah. Hypervigilance. yeah. 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 I got to get rid of this because the emotions are so high and I got to get this over with. Even though I've been avoiding it, now all of a sudden I have to get it over with. But you've been avoiding it this whole time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Do you guys, other thoughts or examples about hypervigilance? Do you guys feel like that's a pretty accurate? Do you, do you feel like in your own kind of internal that that's a thing to be concerned about? <laughs> so, yeah, back to me, you know, anxiety, background, you know, I used to have a little temper. You know, I have, I have had to learn how to not, you know, fall into this trap of I've avoided, 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 and then all of a sudden something happens and now I want to, 
I want to make a rash decision or I want to be emotional about something, right? Yeah. Can we see it often in international relations? Yes. Um, you know, when you have countries that are in conflict that are at odds with South Korea and North Korea, uh, they're odd and at any moment there, that, can, that can escalate. Yes. Um, and that's because tensions have been building up for, you know, years. Yeah. Um, we've seen it with Russia and Ukraine, you know, lately stuff has been happening lately and that can, uh, with the next move, completely change uh, the way we, we see, you know, how so. Yeah, that's a good. That's good because it, it definitely has a place um, in international relations, and hopefully, you know, and you guys have your own perspective if you've been paying attention. But hopefully, it's not that the two, you know, Putin and Biden are avoiding, but that they're they're actually doing something constructive in this process. If they're doing something constructive, good. If it's just avoidance, then that's something to be concerned about. Um, you know, I, I tend to think in international relations, moving slow is not a bad thing, right? <laughs> it's okay to move a little slower, but you see it in the history of the wars in, in, in Europe, right? And if you look in Europe in particular, a lot of, a lot of rash decision-making where people were just mad about something, right? Silly things, in fact. Yeah, I mean, we made, yeah, that one was interesting because we made, you know, you have, you have two presidents. You have one, you have a Trump who made an arbitrary withdrawal date. And then, and then another a Democratic president is coming up against the date. And I think both, you know, both are culpable for how it kind of ended up. So, you know, that, that could be its own case study about decision making. You know, why put an arbitrary date out there? And then, and then on Biden's side, you know, you don't have to live up to the, you don't have to follow that date. Um, and then a rash kind of exit um, caused some caused some problems. So that's a good one to bring up. Okay, other lessons maybe from this. So how do we apply this as managers, as decision makers? Just be aware of these emotional decisions and and try to avoid the defensive avoidance and hypervigilance. What about what about uh, is this bad rational comprehensive model or bad? Successive limited comparisons or bad both. Well, I think that it can happen yeah. If you were doing rat, if you were if you knew you were going to have a confrontation with a group, what would you do? At a compound, you go look at all the case studies of what has happened when the police or the government have to go into a compound and confront a, uh, an extremist group. We don't. We have a lot. There's a lot of bad case studies where this has happened. Waco, probably the leader. Um, but there's others. You would get all that information and then kind of realize what had happened and work through it in advance rather than just repeating the same mistakes that everybody's made before. Do you think that maybe someone would say, oh, but this is different? Then- yeah, they may say that. I don't, I don't see it as much different than, you know, we had a, you know, in a, a small level because it was a family, um, Ruby Ridge in Idaho, um, or, or Waco or, you know, I think, I think especially like the FBI law enforcement, they're much more deliberate about how they do things now um, because, they, because they are doing that rational comprehensive and looking back and saying, hey, this has gone wrong before. We know how to avoid this. Yeah. the police force is known to be incompetent in this case? Yeah. Yeah. And a bad police, you've got to retrain them and get them, get them 
you know, where they need to be. So that just makes your problem even worse if you have an incompetent force. Yeah, that's what I was confused about because when it talked, it said like he tried to get the FBI there. He tried to get like, I think it's the National Guard or something to assist. And if you look at cases like Waco or Ruby Ridge, they had like federal agencies that were Yeah, there. it was the FBI there. Yeah, so why were they not like, like I know it said that they didn't think it was a serious enough situation, but like, why? <laughs> like, I just don't get why the FBI wouldn't be involved in this, and why yeah. it's all just on the mayor. Yeah, Waco's a little different because if you know, you guys are all going to go read up on Waco now. Waco's a little different because I'm convinced that the Branch Davidians probably started the fire themselves. Yeah. Um, so you got an apocalyptic leader. Um, this, is, this is different because the, the police are literally starting the fire. Um, so, but, but the, the, the similarities are the armed confrontation caused the outcome, right? So, um, you know, one kind of, and he's running for governor now, Ammon Bundy, that's running for governor of Idaho. <laughs> we have known terrorists running, domestic terrorists running for governor. That's, we have weird, we're like California. We have really weird people running for governor all the time. So we had, a, he took over with, a, with his, his group. Um, they took over the, the animal refuge, the bird refuge in Oregon, yeah, a few years ago. Okay. So what did the what did the FBI do? Did they did they rush in there and no. They waited and waited and waited until they left and then they arrested them. So I think I think there has been lessons learned about, you know, how do we deal with these these standoffs? He's he lives in Boise now, yeah. Well, like where he came from before. I forgot what called. Well, he's from, his, he's from Nevada. Yeah, his parents, his dad owns a ranch in Nevada. My yeah. Dad used to work yeah, and they had that. They had the first. They had that standoff, and actually, the actually the, I thought the I thought the feds did a really good job of avoiding the confrontation at the at that standoff, and then they did another good job at the Oregon deal. So, oh, finish your thought. But anyway, my friend says that he's like a gentleman's bum, and everybody doesn't like him. <laughs> Surprise. So. Yeah, we get these candidates that like rename themselves like freedom or <laughs> pro-life. Yeah, it was pro-life, actual, an actual kind of pro-life. A guy named, renamed himself pro-life and has been running for governor. So, you know, it, it, yeah, any Cal Californians in here? You guys get the crazy governors. People running for governor, too. It usually includes some movie stars as well. Or a movie star may be elected to governor. That, that, it, uh, it that, could, that could happen. Right, it and twice. an action hero, like an action. Reagan, you had Reagan too, right? Yeah, yeah we had Schwarzenegger and Reagan. Well, I you guys like your your actors for governor. Well, I was not alive for Reagan, but okay. I'm glad Schwarzenegger's out. Let's do this. Let's let's do like a three minute synopsis of the theory reading, and then we'll do Columbine. So, very basic chapter about communications. You, you probably were reminded of a, a few terms and things and then learned maybe a, a couple of other things. Um, one thing is communications in organizations can move in all different directions, right? Up, down, sideways, top, down. And we've seen in our cases I, pretty much all those directions so far, haven't we? Yeah, for sure. The, the very first case was sort of a, you know, that had the letter going up the chain of command, right? We had the the shuttle case where it's, it's some side to side 
we had the, the Kristen case, side-to-side -side communications, right? So just remember that, depending on the organization and who you're working with, you have, you have different directions. You might have all directions at play, depending on the circumstances, right? You know, if it's an intergovernmental relations type thing, the church's case, you had a lot of different communications flows happening in that case. Okay, so know, know the organization. I, I work in a, in a very top-down organization here at BYU-Idaho, and I'm aware of that, and I know the advantages and disadvantages of working in that organization. Okay, um, they talk, there's a lot of different things in communications. We do, we, we, you know, we're, I'm a political scientist, but we talk a lot about communications as well that we have to be aware of and try to avoid. Things like groupthink, right? Things like information overload. Things like the case talked about with these psychological factors that come into decision making. The other thing that I thought the theory reading was good about is talking about professional communication specialists and that they can do all these really cool things. They can, they can audit the communications of your organization and make recommendations and help you. So now in, in politics, in public administration, we hire people that have majors in communications that know what they're doing. <laughs> and they're professionals and they do a great job. Um, so, you know, if you work in public administration, you'll see that, uh, you know, and we get a lot of help from those, from those folks. So there's a, there's a right way to do this. And I think the, the theory reading points that out pretty well. Okay, so Columbine. The case, another case where you probably thought it was about what it wasn't about, right? You know, it's sort of the from a, it's sort of from the communications response, not about, you know, why did we, why did we have another school shooting, type case, right? So what do you, who are the you, you have the shooters, you have this high school, and you have all these law enforcement folks. So you have the administration at the school, and those, and the parents and the students, and those are kind of the players in the case. And, and I think one of the things that complicates it is when you have a tragedy like this, you get lots of people just showing up even outside of the jurisdiction. So my first question is, is that a bad thing? Can we, can we avoid it? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So in this case, you had not just first responders from all over the place, but you had parents showing up at the scene. Because, I mean, that's what I would do if, if my kids, heaven forbid, I heard a school shooting, at the, I'd go to the high school too. So it's not good. I think you're right. But in some ways, it's unavoidable because I think you're always going to get, you know, these, these first responders, the cops and the, and the firemen and the, and the EMT folks, I mean, that's just how, that's how they're wired, right? So I think you can expect some of that. Um, kind of all the time. So if you're in, if you're in emergency management, kind of plan for it. I think is that you're going to get some, you're going to get some people that are outside of the jurisdiction just coming. So you know that ahead of time. Okay. So the shooting, you know, they they did what they did, and it was even. I mean, it was a little more planned out and comprehensive than people even knew as they got in there and and looked at it. And thank goodness. Thank goodness their their explosives weren't very good, right? Because it could have done they could have done a lot more damage. Well, two things. Thank goodness they their explosives weren't very good, and thank goodness they just got bored, or whatever happened, and they just decided to stop shooting people and shoot themselves. They should have just shot themselves at the beginning. Um, that would have been a much better outcome. So um, 
the case is really about they when they when they you know by the time the first responders are there they're almost done aren't they yeah because they end up in the library they kill some people in the library and then they kill themselves right um so it really is about the first responders showing up not knowing how many shooters there are if they have hostages and all this and you know they might have gone about it way differently had they known hey there's these guys are already dead right we can go in there um because you've got not just you know you got to get SWAT there and all that you did have the, the you had the one was it the security guard or the a policeman the security guard was like the first person and he actually kind of confronted he saw the he saw some sh the shooters right and then there's a police officer that actually yes yeah but it's pretty much over by the time you get you know back up there so so you have all these people responding to the to the scene and what what are kind of the initial problems that you see that they're having in the case yeah uh these uh, the first responders don't know owe each other because Columbine's yeah. in multiple di uh, jurisdictions, and uh, the uh, the guys from the next county over also decided, "Hey, we're gonna help yeah, you." Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so there, there's a lot, there's a lot of confusion because they don't know each other, and they maybe they haven't worked together. They don't they don't know who's in command either, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think another big part of this was they had no idea what was going on. They heard reports that it was six people, yes. eight people, their bombs, grenades, everything. They yes. didn't know what to expect. Yes, and you have students coming out. So this is information overload, right? Mm -hmm. You have students coming out saying all kinds of different things, and you're going to get bad information. You're going to get some good information. You're, gonna, you're hearing it from all over the place. And so that could be really confusing, and then you've got to kind of work through that stuff. Um, at the same time, you've got press showing up. Press want to be kind of debriefed on what's happening and you do, you don't even know who's for the first hour or so you don't even know who's in command you have you certainly haven't set up a uh some a per, you don't have a perimeter either you don't have you don't have any way to deal with the press yet because you haven't figured that out so it's just it starts off real bad right other thoughts about yeah they have an outdated map yeah so so i get it you can't have maps of everything but you, you think that you would have a map of a, of a major high school in the town. That's what, if you're going to have a map, that's one building you would want to have a map of. Oh, I was just going to say, I think it goes back to um, what they talked about in the Katrina one. I think it's like interoperability. Or yes. Something. Like being able, like the firefighters couldn't communicate with. So lack of interoperability again. Yeah. Okay, good. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, they actually got, they actually figured out who was in charge. They decide they got the press thing figured out, and then they kind of do, they do okay once they do that. But that takes them a little bit of a little bit of time. Other thoughts on communication problems in the case? Another problem that was going on in the case was they were also having radio issues, frequency. Issues yes. The interoperability. Yeah. I think we're in a, you know, this is another kind of older case, 90, 97 for Columbine, is that right? 99? 99 for Columbine, so we're, what, 20, 23 years out. Um, you know, and, and we had the 9-11 case, which is two years later. So our inter we've been working on interoperability, and we're, we're, we're much better now kind of than we were, so...
I was also just going to mention, I feel like this match uh, did not perform the best. Yeah. I feel like they did not really have a lot of information they were supposed to, particularly when the shootings began in the library. They had the teacher that was in there on the phone call. They heard right. The yeah, that's good. Okay, so solutions. You guys are you guys got some questions on this one. What what would you recommend in terms of how to better perform in a situation like this? Yeah. The, the ability to figure out who's in charge faster. You should already know that, yeah. right? That should be a done deal. If you know, is it going to be the? It's it's going to be probably one of two people, right? It's going to be the police chief or the or or fire or one of their one of their underlings or something like that. But no, no in advance. If we're all showing up to this thing, who is in charge? Uh, which police chief? Yeah, in which in which particular, it, which which police chief? It, shouldn't it be the probably the jurisdiction that it's happening in the the head policeman in that jurisdiction? Yeah, and you had you did have some multiple jurisdictional issues. Yeah, so I, that's why everybody... But still, right? You don't you haven't had a discussion about who's going to be in charge if something happens at the high school? That's a little surprising, right? Yes, it is. So, yeah, we should know that already. Have a press, be ready to have a press person. Be ready to, to know who's in charge there. Have a command center. I thought, you know, once, I don't think you need to be doing more than uh, one press conference an hour, right? I think they got that right. But have a plan. Know what you're going to do. Um, and, all, and all of that. So, other thoughts about have, a, have an updated map. Do actual training. You know, with the groups, have you know, have you already been to the high school on a weekend or something and done some training and kind of walked the building and and all that? You know, have you worked with these folks before? Um, those would all be, I think, pretty good recommendations for for how to do better. Other thoughts on on recommendations, communications issues in the in the case? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I think this case is a, is similar to kind of the New York case. Um, you know, the more stuff we can do to get to know each other, that's just going to improve. Do trainings together. You know, it's a, and again, it's it's twenty twenty three years later. We now do trainings. There's kind of a famous one that happened at Madison High School where they went a little overboard years ago. <laughs> Does anybody know about? Has anybody heard about this thing before? Yeah. They like role played this whole thing out. And like, I think it involved like rubber bullets and all kinds of things. So I don't know that we need to do that. But like, when the school is empty, um, I think you can do some, some training. And then, and then on the students, and then even with the students and parents, I think we're in a better situation where, unfortunately, because of all the shootings that happen at schools, we know. Schools know where, schools have trained the students, they have also trained the parents, they know where kind of the safety zone is going to be ahead of time, and so that's helpful. Um, so having the right information takes time. Yes. And it's a complex you know, issue, but having a, time, a team assigned to just collecting data. Where yes. Yeah, that's very good. Um, now, about this same issue, um, what would you suggest? Because in that case, students are the ones coming out, they have... 
um, like an information overload, what, what, how do you sift through all that information? How do you find what is actually accurate, what is not? That's a great. I get the comm majors. <laughs> I get a super great comm major from Harvard. So how do you do it? That's a great question. How do you sift through? You're getting conflicting things. You're getting all this information. How do you sift through this? Yeah. Yeah. So you know what they you know how they do you know how they do this right? You you start to get information that confirms other information right? And you and you can pick out hey this somebody's saying there's six but I'm getting all this, you know it may be two and another person said it may be two and you start to make patterns, and that takes time, but that's kind of how you how you try to deal with it. So that's the cross examination of information. Yes. But uh, typically, like in the military, whenever you get intel, you always do your best to confirm it with your own people. Yep, and then you do your own intelligence. You get eyes yep. on it, right? Either a frontline leader that you uh, trust. And so that's why they waited, and rightly so. You don't go rushing in there with SWAT because you you got to verify and you got to get the information because you don't know what you're walking into. Um, so that's exactly right. And I was thinking military. That's exactly how the military does it. Is you try to try to do that cross examination and 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 then you and then you have to do some further intelligence before you make decisions. Um, so that's very tough in, in a, a situation where you're trying to hurry and maybe save lives. Yeah, I think my last critique on that, the case there would probably be the the amount of the media just like once the media wasn't satisfied with what's going on, they kind of just went into their own thing, interviewing people like. I think yeah. they interviewed someone who was shot, like a student who was shot. When it was crazy, like another, you know, from the media perspective, they botched this whole thing. I mean, they did some things they shouldn't have done. They were showing that they were, they were filming the school, which they never should do. They had helicopters over top of the school. That shouldn't be going on, any of that stuff. So, you know, the, you could have had a case just about the, how the media behaved because they behaved poorly. You know, the other, the other thing, I, the thing I thought was unfair in the case, there was a lot of criticism about how they kind of, they, how they um, analyzed the scene. And with the bodies and stuff like that, I thought that was a pretty unfair criticism. If you know anything about forensics and and how how you have to take your time, and you can't just you can't just get those poor kids out of there that are that have passed away. You've got to actually get the evidence and process the scene and all that. So I thought that was kind of unfair, but um, interesting case, um, as they all are. So okay, good luck on the test. Let me know if you have questions. I'll see you back live on Monday. Thank you. I'm feeling great now that I've been standing for an hour. <laughs> no class on Friday. Yeah, the test is the class. So the test fills the place of class. Now, question. You're teaching a class next semester of like, public admin theory. Yeah, it's, this, it's called Principles of Public Administration. Are we going to have class in person on Friday? <laughs> Yeah, so if it's my it's my class, you're talking about my class. So the I'm leaning towards not I'm leaning towards doing exactly what I did this semester. Oh, that'd be so, so great. <laughs> yeah, probably highly likely that I'll do that. Because I was gonna say I'm like that is super late. Well, it should be it should it's probably a three fifteen to four fifteen. Yeah. I have. I like the afternoon classes, so yeah. I was probably, just wondering if it was set up. I think the, that's the same. I think that's the plan. Okay, awesome. So. Thank you so much for the room. Okay, I just want to have you take a look at this. It's not double spaced. I just did. It's just the one printer.
Yeah, that looks double spaced to me. Okay, yeah. he docks me on it. So if you, so if that's the case, I will. I, we need to have another conversation. And I need to go fix it. Okay. Yeah. Good. yeah. I was also having that issues. Yeah. So it just needs to be double spaced between there. Yes. Uh, okay, because I yeah. put one differently. Yeah. So, so I've been having issues. So as long as it looks like that, you're good. Uh, yeah. So you need to send me an email so I can move it here. Yeah. I have yeah. one who is a little different. The question, the numbers are. The numbers are kind of double spaced, like below us. Uh, my exit. I'm, I just didn't know how it was supposed to be, and I cannot figure that part out. Between questions or inside of the question? Um, between the questions, like below the number. So you have the number, yes. and then you just start your response, oh, really? single space that, and then double space oh, in between. Um, okay, one of my papers has like where they're not okay. like this. Okay. So, so he docked you a little bit. I don't think I've gone anything Oh, well, well you probably will. So just I make sure, did you see like hers? Yeah. She had hers perfect. So that's, oh, so that's how you want Yeah, that's how you want them. I have an interview right there. Also on the discussions, I forgot about them on Monday. Can we still do them? But, I mean, I feel the like the next chapters yeah. are kind of fine. There are two but, discussions yeah. I saw in the discussion. Oh, discussion board. boards that we had for online days? Yeah, you can still get in there and do them. Oh, okay, because yeah. I know we're being great on participation. Yep. So yeah, like, I if I still do, if I yeah, still go back in there and do them. Uh, okay, so that still count as participation? We haven't, we haven't analyzed yeah, them yet, so yes. Uh, okay, so yeah. I'll do yeah. Yeah. yeah, get in there and do them. Okay, thank you. Yes. I turned in my internship application today. Okay, I should see it coming through my email then. Yes. Okay, where is the internship at? So the thing is though is that on the application is that it needs to be taken for at least seven weeks. I can get I actually do the internship in three and a half without a prop, but I need to spread it out. Um well how are you gonna get two hundred and forty hours in three and a half? Twelve hour shifts, five days a week. Okay, so sixty hours times Three and a half, four weeks. You're still not, I mean, four weeks, are, yeah, four weeks gets you to 240. Yeah, so four weeks. So, so the training is 40 hours. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. So I don't have a problem with it. Okay. The school likes that seven week. So right. just kind of, Okay. if you'll just put, just put, that it's, put it so it looks like it's going to be seven that's weeks. That's what I did. You're fine then. Okay. I'll approve it. Okay. And I was a little freaked out. I mean, that's a reason. Like March 31st. So I, think like, there's a, I mean, they kind of want to make it like a semester experience. Right, right, right. And that's, so that's why they do it. But like, this is. I'm going into the military, so like this isn't like a job. No, I'm fine with it, so we'll be good. Okay. Yeah, I'll just I'll just approve it and it will be fine. Okay, thank yeah. you. And then what you need, you can get me, you write a five-page paper at the end. Yeah. Kind of on what you learned. Okay. Is it on top of the weekly reporting? It's on top of the weekly. The re weekly thing's like a paragraph. Like, yeah. what did you do? Okay. No top secret stuff or anything like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then, and then you, you five page paper. How what'd you learn? How does it apply to the major? You can you can finish that at the end of the semester or when you get done. Probably I'd recommend for you just like when you get done and get it over. Yeah, because so. I have to do some Utah stuff. Just stuff. just turn it in and say just reminding you that I was doing a shorter internship and here's my five page okay. paper. So if I actually if that actually happens that way um, with the, the application online says seven weeks. So is there? So I actually do it in three and a half four. Do I need to keep reporting to you? Like, well, I told no. you I had time for it. No, you can just weeks. report for four weeks and then write me the paper and you're done. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Quick question? Uh, no. <laughs> long question? I have a long question. Okay, so what's your, is your question about internships? Um, kind of, yes. It's yeah. I have three topics. Oh. Relatively short. That's why I said long is because it's three. Okay. Um, go ahead. We'll get you first. Um, so, like, what is the difference between, like, an internship versus, like, a fellowship in terms of, like, 
when it comes to like school credit? Doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what they call it. It's we'll still count it. If, it, if, the, if the place you're going is kind of a fellowship, you can do a fellowship. Okay. Or a job. Or a volunteer experience. They're all they'll all qualify for internship. Really? Yeah. Okay, and then then I have to like apply for it or make sure that it fits, and then you. If if there's a question about whether it will work or not, run it by me just so I can kind of pre-approve it. If there's not a question, oh, then like I'm sure it'll work. Like it's for the DNC in Arizona. Yeah. Then go so, ahead and apply. Okay. Yeah. Well, I already I have an interview. Okay. Yeah, you're good. Okay. And then once you get it, then we then you you attach it to a semester. Okay. And all that, and, and, and I approve it. Can I attach it to like this semester? If you wanted to, if you're going to get enough hours before the end of the semester. Yeah. Okay, probably next semester then. But can I start it this semester? Absolutely. Oh, okay. So if you're finishing the hours, like say next semester, you would want to apply for next semester. Okay. And then just make sure that it looks like you're going to need your 240 hours okay. uh, during that semester, but we can kind of bank what you've done already. But can I keep doing it even after next sure. semester? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you can do it as long as you want. We're, we're just tying it to a class. Okay. And then all you do for me is the is the weekly email and the paper. Okay, but I could count it towards six credits. Though. You could if you get 480 hours. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty much all my questions. Yeah, let me know. Um, you, you might have some follow-up questions once you get done with this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, uh, there's a lot of flexibility, so we can make it work. All right, appreciate yeah. it. Have a good one. What's yeah. up? So three. First one. Um, I'm sad because I've never been able to take the terrorism class. I had a great interest. That is sad. Graduating this semester, I was just asking, is there a way I could like get the PowerPoint, the material to read on it in my free time? Sure. Um, or, you know, I wonder if I could. I mean, I could let you into an old class, or I could let you into next semester class. Just whatever you want to do. I am graduating this semester. Okay. So just send me an email and say, hey, we talked about this. I can, I can, I can let you look at the canvas. I can give you some things to watch. To awesome. Read. Yeah, no, I'd really appreciate that. Um, no problem. Second question. Uh, I'm in Brother Lamoureux's capstone. Mm -hmm. I forgot to ask him a question, but you're also doing one. Yes. How many sources, on average, are do you think are good for a uh, academic journal and policy proposal like this? <laughs> I mean. Does he not have a minimum number of sources? I just forgot to ask it. <laughs> well, ask him because he may have something. We don't have a, like a standard for oh, okay. all the classes. I'm. They have to have a certain amount of like scholarly journals for mine. Okay. My rule, my kind of general rule for, is three to five sources per page. Okay. So, uh, nobody ever seems to get to that. <laughs> but that's my. That's what I'm shooting for. Right. But but he may have a thing where he wants you to have 25 journal articles. So make sure you double check with him. Gotcha. And then he may have a minimum number of sources he wants to. Okay. So, um, and his, his, I mean, how long's your paper? Um, thus far, I'm at 8,000. What's the, what's, how long does it have to be? Uh, he said 10,000 word plus. Uh, and I'm doing a podcast combined with oh. lab types. 10,000 words would be how many pages? Uh, 30 pages. I'm at 28 right now. Yeah. 300 words a page. Yeah. 33 pages. Yeah. He's, that's about what mine is. My okay. 30 pages. Okay, perfect. So, cool. All right, and then the very last question with the internship, this one actually arrives because of that. I haven't completed my internship, nor am likely going to be able to get one this semester. Okay, you can walk, and as long as you have one planned for after graduation. Which I very much do. Okay, so you're set. You'll work that out as, when you go to apply for graduation. They'll make sure that you have, uh, have it planned. Okay. Then they'll let you walk. And then they'll just kind of verify that you have the internship, and then you'll you'll register 
next semester for it, you'll you'll write me the weekly email, you'll write the paper, I'll give you a grade, and once you have that grade, they'll send you the diploma. Okay, and so this can also obviously just be done out of state? I'll like it can be done, yes. Okay. The only place we're not approving right now is overseas. Right, okay. Unfortunately. Yeah, that's kind of sad. Yeah, we, we it's really sad. <laughs> so hopefully we'll get back to doing that. Um, I don't know what the deal is there, but I mean, I think they saw, I think they, for some reason, didn't want to have them, and they saw, they used COVID as an excuse. Because so, I've had interns all over the world. I mean, that feels like a little bit cool. Yeah. That's something I probably won't be able to do as I have an emphasis in America. Yeah. I would really love to do something. But let's communicate and, but if, yeah, that's kind of a cool feature that you can do that last. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, so. uh, at this point. I mean, that's what everybody cares about anyways is, you know, the walking part of it. You yeah. can wait a few months for your diploma. I was going to say, and honestly, I only care about the diploma. <laughs> Yeah, I was lucky. I never, <laughs> I never went to graduation. I graduated four times because I went to a junior college. Wow. So I got, so I had that graduation, then I got my bachelor's, then I got my master's, then I got my doctorate. They didn't go to any of them. My mom was so mad at me. Oh, that's funny. She's like, you're not gonna go to your doctor. Like, no. My friend, we all Thank just you. ran out on high school graduation. I did go to my high school graduation. You did go to that one? I well, went to that one. I suppose we kind of showed up. That's right. So that's the that's how it works. Just let me know and what's the what's the internship you're gonna be having? So I suppose I had I say I had it planned out, which is a little deceiving. I suppose I have what I want and okay. I'm probably going to apply to it. Yeah. But it's not. So they're gonna want to make sure they won't let you walk unless you actually have it. Right. Okay. So, gotcha. Just so you know that. Just for Ooh. But that one actually felt good. Uh, they didn't, they had no need for it. So that one was the first one. Did I you interview with them? I've had one, I had one intern there over here. They're hard to get into. Oh, really? Okay. Because they take, because they take all those New York college students. Uh, That's who usually does interns there. <laughs> yeah. I've been there a few times. Because I go to New York City for... We do an internship expedition. Oh, okay. So I've had appointments with them over the years. They got a cool little office, like oh. upper, it's on the upper, uh, upper east side. <laughs> yeah, I've been there five times probably. That's good. I'm glad you. I'm glad you were in the mix. Yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping another one at least like that shows up. Okay. Uh, you know we have. You know we have connections at. Um, well, we have connections at the UN and LDS Public Affairs in New York City, too. At the moment, I've been using the search one. Do you have another database that you use? Well, for those two, I can just let you know. You know, the UN, you can just apply online. Oh, okay. So it doesn't necessarily even need to be an open. I mean, LDS Public Affairs has two students every semester. Oh, okay. Gotcha. You're in, you know what they do, right? Totally. So they work, they, they're the public affairs office for the church okay. but they work with the un that's actually really so it's all cool. stuff with the un i had no clue so it's a pretty good internship for people like you so if you're interested in that let me know and i'll give you the contact yeah will do yeah. I'll, I'll send you an email okay thank you very much take care hey speaking of international people oh no joseph again <laughs> oh. we're trying to hook him up with an internship here so
They're kind of they're kind of snobby too, by the way. They like their they like their Ivy League students. Didn't make it on time, but I had seven people with questions. It's like I it's like I worked here or something. Yes. Well, I'm gonna sit down. That may be a mistake, but I just may not get up. That is another advantage of the mask. He like turns around and like looks right at Sierra. And yeah, like and the most like, unsubtle oh. thing in the entire world, straight up like turns and stares. I'm glad I wasn't there. That's now. funny. I was getting close and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> it was beautiful. So I turned around. What do we got, a cityscape here? So uh, part of my life now, I'm just going to have us like talk about like what kind of like comes to mind when you think about a city. So I had to use it then. So we got the Eiffel Tower. Empire State Building, uh, San Francisco, Main Tower Pizza, and then this is the Great Wall of China, which kind of gets All right, we got a lot to cover, and everyone. Make sure you guys have your half hour. Who else is going today? So oh, yes, right. So make sure you have your half an hour. Yeah, she wants a little bit more time, but I will. Or however you guys want to divide it up. How are you feeling? Well, <laughs> I'm feeling better, but then I hurt my back. Oh. So I've been limping around today, and then I had a weird accident with my eye. Is it still red? Yeah. So I, it's a long story, but essentially what happened was a dart got dropped on my eye, but the, not the pointy part. And it just hit my, so it's just scratched my eye, but it's been kind of sensitive. So, so the, and, then, and then I realized that I should have wore sunglasses. The light was really, has really been bothering me when I drive. So on the way here, because of that scratch, I, 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 I had to like go like this so I could drive. Weird. Yeah. So I was just glad it wasn't the other end of the, 
of the uh, dark, or I might not be seeing at all. I'd be like my dad. My dad is blind in one eye. There you go. Nice. He had a he got a finger. He's the only person. I'm a, I'm a basketball guy. I've been around basketball my whole life. He's the only person I've ever heard of got, that got blinded in a basketball game. Somebody's finger went in his eye. Finger went in the eye, detached. No. Yeah. All the way back and detached a bunch of stuff in the back. He has his yes in the side. It went all the way in the side and like messed his eye up. So he's completely blind in his right eye. You said detached. I thought the finger was detached. Oh no! So it was. I guess it was nasty. Like, did he sue the guy that did it? No, he didn't sue anybody, and it happened in. A, it, he didn't sue the guy. It happened in a church basketball game, and when he was 25, and of course he's not going to sue the church. Yeah. The church gave him ten thousand dollars, just as a. Sorry, you lost your eye in a church basketball game. He called it his eye money. That is for us, though. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, it's such a freak. I, I mean, I have a dad that was blind in a basketball game, but it's such a rare thing that I never wore goggles or anything. Um, yeah, he is literally the only person I know of. I mean, I've heard of like people getting injured like for a temporary type thing. Like, even with the eyes, but like blinded? It's weird. Freak accident. So, did he have it? So my dad, so my dad's eye still still moves, and he has his eye. Everyone thought he had a glass eye, but he, his eye's still in there. It just doesn't work. No, it looks like he can see. I'm surprised that it wouldn't like die or anything. Yeah. No, it, 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 yeah. And it moves and everything. It just can't see out of it. What do you think? Those glass, have you ever seen one of those glass eyes though? Those things, they do such a good job with those that you don't even, you can't even tell. They just, I mean, they don't move. So that's how you can figure it out. But. Yeah, like, yeah. Just like the front part. Yes. Just have them make a contact the moment. Yeah. They like pull them on like whatever it's like. Yeah, they like put their eyelid over it and hold it in. Yeah. Wait, you missed one line. You forget rid of that line. Why do you have to Anyways, I was just I was real glad it wasn't the pointy part so that I'm not blind. But yeah, I was having one of those days. Like, man. I can't move and now I'm getting a dart in my eye. How does the dart get so I was sitting under I, we gotta move this dartboard. We have a dartboard above the couch downstairs. Like on the ceiling? No, right on the wall. And I was sitting below it. And my son was moving something, hit the dart, came down and hit me in the eye. Oh, okay. And then I was like, was that a dart? Thank goodness that wasn't the pointy side. Gosh. I thought you got COVID again on Monday. No COVID, thank goodness. Just sick. Like, that would be Just sick. the story. I've had COVID three times. Everyone else I know has COVID. But my parents, my dad currently has COVID. My mom just had it. You're the so. only one that I knew why. He's doing fine. I was a little nervous. He's uh, he's got some health, some heart. He's got some heart issues, so we don't like him getting sick. But he's about day seven. My mom did fine, but she she kicked her butt a little. Isn't it five day quarantine though? Yeah. He uh, my mom was pretty sick for about two weeks. So, it's weird. Okay, Cody, uh, let's just go. 
We had enough prayers today anyways. All right. Okay. So welcome to class. So me and you guys are going to split the days up, so I'm going to kind of run through mine a little bit faster. Um, and you're five and six, is that right? Six and seven. Six and seven. Yeah, I'm on basically uh, destroying cities and safe cities, and then also why are housing prices cheaper in some places, and uh, moving to Houston and all that kind of stuff. So. so six is the skyscrapers. Yeah. And so basically it talks a lot about... Um, I have a couple of notes, a couple of things I want to talk about that I think will be kind of interesting to kind of see. So I was going to have everyone kind of, I, mean, I don't know how you do that. So I don't know how I do it either. It's like suffocating me. So I was going to have everyone think of a city and kind of like what comes to mind. And then in the first couple pages of the chapter six, it talks about whether or not we should destroy a city to save it, basically, because you have a lot of history and a lot of cities that are basically tourist attractions, but then what do you do with the people that are trying to live there? And so they, I think a lot of the chapter talks a lot about preservation and how far is preserving a city, are we going too far? So I thought that was super interesting. So I wanted to kind of open that up for a form a little bit and think where should we draw the line when we think about some of these monuments? So like say we're trying to build around the Eiffel Tower, like how far do you have to go before you realize, okay, this is too much preservation and we need to actually start expanding for human population. So I was just gonna kind of see thought about that. I think it depends in part, and maybe this is totally heartless, but I think it depends on which one's bringing you more revenue. Like, yeah, that is heartless. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but like tourism for the Eiffel Tower is huge. Yeah, yeah. Like you're gonna be getting a lot of people from all over coming there, or like is taxes from the citizens that live there is that gonna give your city more revenue? Because if you cut off a tourist attraction, you're gonna lose a lot of money. But what about building closer to the, the Eiffel Tower? So, you know, there's lots of land out next to the Eiffel Tower. Like, what about all of that land right there? What if you start building over there? And then you kind of just have a smaller space. Like, do you think that's okay then? And just as long as you're keeping yeah. the tourist section of it, but then you're having less. Again, housing or businesses? Yeah. You build, oh. If you build a bunch of businesses right by the Eiffel Tower, it kind of simulates it, right? There's a bunch of tourists that see the Eiffel Tower and walk yeah. around. So, they want to say houses then? Like, Apartments. I feel like it's not as worth it. It doesn't bring any revenue. Yeah, like, you, like it's going to make like that housing more expensive because it's close to that, you know, and so you're going to have like Airbnb. I feel like that's still going to affect more people. And in fact, it might even affect more than it already does. Yeah. It's cheaper to like, stay nearby. They're going to want to like have the full. Like, I think that would actually benefit the city. Yeah, I didn't think about businesses. I was I was thinking about apartments because it's just convenient. So I like that. Um, so. And then how tall? Yeah. So that was one of the themes. Building, you know, do you do you? I don't know. I guess New York has some places that are more protected. They have some heights that are protected, but for the most part, not. Yeah. But Paris, know, Paris, Paris so all of Paris is protected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They they have a five-story max, right? Mm -hmm. So and, and one of the reasons is to protect the view, the views. Yeah. So. I like that it talked about elevators and like the people that had to live on the top floors were the less wealthy, those were the artists, and so they got the best views, the best inspiration. And so they talked about how elevators changed that and they flipped it basically, that you now had the best views, you were having higher prices for the highest building. So that was pretty cool. Once you, once you decided you weren't gonna die exactly. on the elevator. Walking, yeah. That was a cool story about, and I've read this a few times, but um, about the, the, the elevator at the World's Fair with the automatic safety. 
we just watched a video of a guy that got into an elevator and as soon as he stepped out, it dropped himself. I'm not watching it. Of recently? No, it was a like an old. It was a, it was a freight elevator. Yeah. Oh. He was like a jacklift. Oh. As soon as he stepped out, it went boom like right on him. So it was pretty crazy. Okay, so then I have so the Niner City's from those people that those people have lost their life. You know the Trinity Church. Trinity Church had talked about how it was the tallest building in New York City. The one his great grandmother went to. That's where Alexander Hamilton's buried. That was his church. Fun fact. So uh, this is a line in the book that I really, really like, and I wanted to kind of have some interpretation of it. So it says, the magic of cities come from their people, but those people must be well served by the brick and mortar that surround them. So kind of thinking about the chapter, what kind of, what does that mean to you guys when you hear about that? So the mortars in the city basically preserving the people, but You should run for mayor on that theme. Do it for the people. Yeah. I like that. You're gonna get. They're gonna elect you. Change. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, because I wrote down and I grabbed that thought. Too much preservation stops cities from providing newer, taller, and better buildings for their inhabitants, and this affects the people and the ability to basically live within the city up to a certain point. Um, and then bigger buildings means bigger industries. This was a big thing we talked about. Um, factories had more spaces, and the cities were able to build. From there, rail, rail stations and increased transportation advantages, which we talked about in chapter seven a little bit as well. Um, it talks about this lady, Jane Jacobs, a little bit in chapter six. She was a big pushback for um, large-scale developments. And why do you guys think that she had a big push? Like, what was her reasoning behind that? Does that remember that at all? I know, well, I one of the famous she, things that they wanted to do is they wanted to run a highway basically Greenwich through Village. Greenwich Village. Yeah. If you've ever been to Greenwich Village, that would have been a shame because it's beautiful. Um, right, You know right where uh, like NYU is and all that. They're going to run a highway right through there. Yeah, yeah so she kind of led, she was a journalist and became kind of a city uh, proponent for cities um, by, by leading marches and, and protests and she was able to, to, to kind of help get it stopped. Yeah, he kind of attacked her economic viewpoint on this because she says that cities need 100 to 200 homes per acre to keep restaurants and shops afloat. But more than that, you need to run the risk of sterile standardization. Um, basically, she was saying that as you, you know, so supply and demand, you know, the, the more you have the supply of, the less demand is gonna be, but she was thinking the opposite, that if you increase the supply, you're also gonna reduce that. So, or decrease the supply, you're gonna increase it. So it's kind of an interesting, so he kind of attacked her, I felt like, I don't know, if, he was like trying to do that, but that's kind of like my interpretation where he was like, yeah, he's kind of like not thinking that's how she was. Well, yeah, I mean, he's right and he's right, but New York might be a special case because because the tourism keeps Greenwich Village alive. So because yeah. there's so much tourism. So in, in your typical city, you know, 
you don't want to restrict height probably because of the reasons that he mentioned, but you're getting not just the residents, all the, but all the tourists. So I don't know. It's probably, there's probably a balance between historical preservation and tall building. Yeah. I, New York, to me, New York has probably the right balance. Because yeah. they do have some some preservation, but they also they also don't completely stand be building. Yeah, do they have like actual like neighborhoods that are preserved, but they gotta keep the neighborhood itself? Like, yeah, so like Greenwich Village, they they have some restrictions there, obviously, but um, other places they don't. So, but the, so Paris, I think, is a is an extreme. And Paris is beautiful. I've never been there, but of course I've seen pictures, and um, Paris is beautiful. But they probably go too far the other way. Talked about the. Oh, you got it. I was just wondering, like, in your opinion or anyone's opinion, where do you think like Salt Lake falls on that? Because like, there's like the historical downtown kind of of Salt Lake with the temple and like the Capitol building and stuff like that. But there's so many tall buildings all around it that you usually can't. See yeah, that's the issue. Is like <laughs> the sight lines get messed up, right? Mm -hmm. So that can be tricky. Yeah, I was just there yesterday actually, and I was like interested because I was in the middle of Salt Lake City where I was staying in the Hampton, but then we drove up to the University of Utah, and there was all of these houses that were like super old, and I was like, I can't even see these, and so it's super interesting because right. you can't even see the highway from those houses, or you can't see most of the city, and you like, lose that line of sight because of how tall the buildings get once you pass a certain point. Salt Lake, and this comes up in a chapter here in a minute, but Salt Lake doesn't rub sprawl, so spread out. Right, yeah. so I don't know. You I guess you try to I guess you try to balance that, um, and and the you know kind of the gem of the city is obviously the temple, and so you you want to try to protect sightlines for the temple as much as you can. Just make all your make all your history things super tall. I mean, like so so World Trade uh, World Trade the Center one that we call it now, right? Um, that's a tall, that's a new building because of the tragedy that happened, but you don't have to worry about being able to see it because yeah. it's so big, right? So it's tricky. But. Well, that's kind of like what I was going to lead into was that train station that they talked about in the book where it was kind of like the history of like where preservation kind of came from was that train station that they had was really tiny, but it was super beautiful and it just couldn't fit the amount of people that were coming through. So then they tore it down and it made a lot of people really angry when they built it. And so I thought that was super interesting. The, the other thing about sightlines is too, like New York has this, so they have all, obviously lots of tall buildings, and but you can but you can get you can get the sightlines down the street too, right? So you can see if you as long as you design your streets right, you can see a lot of historical things and, and like you know down that certain corridor. It doesn't have to be you know level everything or not have anything just so you can see it from every angle. So it's probably it's a, you know it's a typical poli sci answer. It's it's a it's a balance. I like the tall buildings. I think tall buildings are cool, but um, you know so. Yeah. Trying to through here, so I'm trying to like some key points. I really liked um, where it talked about the Mumbai and the highways and doing the decongestion. Uh, problem. He kind of gives you the three steps that you should, that you should do to kind of solve this problem, um, which I thought was interesting. So he says a city should replace the current lengthy and uncertain permit uh, permitting process with a simple system of fees, tax systems to those who have the deal have to deal with the change. So this is talking about um, 
when you have either the, the highways or the cities and you're building a building that basically covers your line of sight, you're taxing those people and giving that money to those who are affected by this happening. So you say, I'm living in this building and then the actual tower is now being covered because, actually a good example, so my neighborhood back in Boise, they completely covered our entire side of the mountains. And so like these guys have been going around town in our neighborhood kind of saying that they demand some kind of compensation basically. This is like one of my lawyers come to like talk to my parents about this because they're like we were losing the side of the mountains and basically why we wanted to live in this neighborhood. So that's kind of that same idea where they say they have a tax system that it gives to those who deal with the change. And then two was historic preservation should be limited and well defined and limit the scope. Kind of what I was talking with Darity and kind of wanted to open it up a, a bit was, you know, like when is it too defined and when do you are you just preserving so many buildings that it doesn't make sense for your city anymore to keep doing that. And then number three was individual neighborhoods should have some clearly delineated power to protect their special character, all individual neighborhoods to craft their own limited set of rules. Kind of what we did with Sierra's project, um, set rules about building styles and use, use, uses that are adopted only with the approval of a very large share of residents. So we kind of created our own cities and they're kind of, he's kind of giving the power back to the people within the town to be able to choose how they want their neighborhoods to look. So I really like that because he says if you incorporate those three things, you'll have a lot less problems. But not too much. Yeah. He's trying to find the balance, right? Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Like we have a we have that unique problem here in in the West where you know we don't have a lot of like especially in Idaho we don't have a lot of big cities. So but our our sight lines are mountains and yeah. I remember when the wind turbines before they had the wind turbines where I live in Ammon. You can yeah. see them when you go on the highway, right? Um, that was one of the big things is it's going to mess up the view and I think they're kind of cool but um, yeah no matter where you're at big large small city you're going to have some of these same issues kind of change it, changes over time yeah and then he says that if cities can't build up they will build out and that's probably worse yeah and he says if building in a city is frozen then the growth will happen elsewhere so you have to continually foster with the growth or else you're going to stagnate that was kind of like the big things I got out of chapter six. Is there anything that kind of stood out to you guys that I feel like I didn't cover that? So it's a balance and you build what the people want. <laughs> and what the yeah. tourists want. Okay. So real quick, I something interesting like from looking in Portugal is like literally everything is historical site. Like they try to build their new things into like old castle walls and things like that. So like for them it is like they've gone like way too far into preserving like everything. Because like sorry if you knock down one castle wall, like you have a million of these things. And like if you're gonna build your own little place, like if you find like a like even like a tiny little structure of something historical, like they do not let you build on that thing. Like Hold on, we gotta talk about this. I didn't realize you lived in Portugal. <laughs> so what were you doing in Portugal? I served my mission. Okay, that's right. Did we talk about this? Maybe once you served your mission in Portugal, so yeah. Um, so you speak Portuguese too. We there's three, there are three of us in here. Um, you're, I think you're right about what from what I know about Portugal, they do there is a lot. And it's like the way that they like, isn't there like a way that they like like colors and like they paint things and as well that they use certain kinds of traditional paint. Yeah, they do. It depends on where. Based on kind of the style of the yeah. city. They do paint in like a lot of places, like instead of getting new buildings, they'll just like repaint. Yeah. 
Yes. Yes. And there's certain colors too. Yeah. So you you I assume you really like Portugal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear great things about Portugal, but I also I, I think they are a little too leaning to yeah, the preservation. It's, it's like, yeah. Yeah. And they have a lot of. And another thing is they've got a lot of. Uh, it's a lot of beach. They got a lot of beach towns. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so they got a lot of. They got a lot of natural tourism. But it, it sounds like from what you're saying, just you know, we can keep some of that old stuff, but let's let's modernize too. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that you were there. Portugal is a great country, but they are kind of behind in a lot of ways in certain areas, aren't they? Yeah. But they're not rebuilding at all. They're just mostly doing like repainting, basically. So are they really not helping? The they overpreserve. Yeah. yeah. Has that been a problem yet, or do you feel like it's going to be a problem eventually because of what they're doing? I think it's starting to be a problem because everyone, like all the old people, like anyone above forty-five, really not old. Well, they've had they some. They've had some economic. <laughs> they've had some historical economic problems in Portugal. So what? The economic problems. They've yeah. been behind. For sure, because like none of no one wants like none of the new generation wants to stay in Portugal. Everyone wants to live in a more modern. Well, Spain has probably done a better job of, of and I've been to Spain, um, probably done a better job of, they have a lot of history too, but they've also modernized as well, and it's a good mix. I think uh, Portugal's probably not done the, the mix as well. Yeah. And also just like the style of government too. Like right. Also doesn't promote people to like actually work. Like no one has the goal to become like a doctor or like anything there. They all just want to grow up and work in their cafes and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> just like very simple living. Yeah. With like not huge like economic desires. Well they have that this is where the Brazilians got it. They got a little bit of that cultural um lack. One lack. Oh I don't know what you I, I, there's a lot of things to admire about it too. Yeah. I learned to admire it from but the, but it does make the Brazilians a little bit slower to do things and take it you know one day at a time and is, is that the Portuguese are that way aren't they yeah yeah so you have all and I know oh, maybe this is maybe this is the American at least for the Brazilian I felt like and maybe you felt this way too like some of the like the men in particular in Brazil just kind of like could you get a little more ambitious <laughs> I mean, you don't have to become an American like I get that we're insane, but but just there's a balance between like this like kind of almost laziness. You used to drive me crazy. I'm like, dude. I mean, not no. Don't get me wrong. There's some great men in Brazil too, but like just in general, like it's like guys, come on, let's be a little more thoughtful and hardworking about this. Drive you crazy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'll just, it's like really, can we just, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a problem. It's like no, it's because they don't have a job. <laughs> or they just play soccer all day. Yeah, they have no ambition to kind of get better. Like a big thing that I saw was people would make their living 
from like the little tiny jobs that you find on Facebook doing yard work or building something for somebody else. You got to leave time for the extracurriculars. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But anyway, I, I mean, I mean, we don't get me wrong. I mean, we're out of balance. Americans are out of balance. We work way too hard. We really do. So I'm not saying that you have to do that. But it's also not the flip side of that. We're like friends. I think that success is nothing less. Like you can't do anything else but be Absolutely. Well, even like with time management, like you, like here you have you. It's important to be on time in Brazil. It's like it doesn't even matter. Yeah. So weird. As an American, it's like it's like people show up late just and they think that's not, like not a big deal at all. It's like a thing. It drove me crazy until I like after about six months, I'm like, I just got to deal with this. <laughs> it's gonna make me mad. Okay. So you want to talk about sprawl for just a quick second yeah, and then turn okay, it over? Yeah, I know you have your activities. So um, basically, we're going to talk a little bit about just like turning away from the cities in this chapter and then focusing more on the sprawls and the urban development. So the communities offer a combination of high quality construction, pleasant amenities, and costs within these new areas that they were talking about in the book. So basically, we talked about Houston and uh, like this town that's living in like basically the forest almost. Like I, don't, I can't remember what it says, but. Um, it talks about how um, mass production of houses creates mass production of the materials, making it easier and faster to create houses and make them cheaper. So during this time, it would drive the prices down for houses over there, but in New York and other places, it was going up still. And then uh, transportation allowed rich to travel farther and buy bigger homes with more land. Therefore, um, you had bigger opportunities to make more money in these areas and live on bigger houses compared to New York. They talked about it, it was like six hundred and what ninety thousand dollars for a house there. And, oh, wait, that was in New York. That was in a uh, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was in the 600000 New York was in the 400000 Yeah, and then the real wages are lower. For yeah, a house, it would be like under $200,000. Where I don't yeah. know where they find the money to do that. Like where. Well, no, like in Manhattan, the only people that live in Manhattan are you're either wealthy or someone you know is wealthy and bought the place for you, or you're living with a zillion people. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're probably living outside of the Manhattan and coming in. Yeah. I like how it talks about Mitchell and McCarr's big stance on environmentalism to help like, create these new communities like in, in nature, but as they created the communities around trees and energy efficient homes, Owners now needed to drive other places, basically eliminating the benefits of doing so. So they were cutting the carbon footprint that they were trying to eliminate, and they were just bringing it right back because it's basically having to travel now. Um, and so, the, basically, when I was think, uh, reading this chapter, like the biggest thing, and this is kind of like how I'll end it, just so we can get into these activities. It was talking about like what kind of like life do you want to live, and I'm like reading this book. <laughs> I looked at Pokemon and I was like, okay, I don't want to live in a city that sounds terrible. Yeah. And I was like, I would I grew up in Boise Meridian, you know, big country farm area. I'm like, that's where I belong. I'm like, I can't live in a city. And he's like, Yeah, that sounds terrible. And I just wanna know like do you guys like what appeals to you more and like why does it appeal to you? Like do you guys wanna live in cities one day or do you guys prefer I feel like that's a good question to like bring up after chapter eight and nine because then that goes into like the benefits of like why it's important to live in densely populated cities and why like the negative effects of living in like out in the country and how you're actually harming the environment more by doing that. Yeah, Cody. 
I'm the worst because I live in the I live in a small city and I commute. Thank you. I'm evil. I gotta get an electric car like tomorrow. I mean, you don't have to. If you feel, if you, that's not a bad spot if you want to stay there. Because I, I, you feel, I, you can see, see everybody. All right. So, um, what I took away from this was like, if you love nature, stay away from it. This is a direct quote from the reading, and I thought that was super interesting. Um, because when we think about environmentalism and like we're serving the nature and everything around us, we think about how we should probably live out, you know, in nature and be surrounded by trees and. Uh, However, like the reading kind of emphasized that that is not the case. And so um, one of the questions that kind of came up to me during the um, reading was that why would a solution to like costly changes um, include saving construction in areas that are greener and reducing building areas that are brown? So uh, first of all, I kind of want to discuss like why, what did the author mean by like green and brown areas? Did you guys like understand what he meant by like, green versus brown areas? And like the green belt and the sun belt and all those things. Yeah. Um, so basically the question, like what he um, said was that it's better to favor construction in areas that are greener and reduce building in areas that are brown. And so like I first kind of want to make that distinction between like green and brown areas. And he kind of gives us an example of two places. So California and then you have Texas. So California would be that green city because like they have all of that like land to build and everything but they have a bunch of like construction fees and all these regulations and policies that would end up being more expensive for people to fight than to just kind of give up. Whereas in like Texas, it's so cheap to live there. Like it's crazy insane how cheap it is to live there. And there's constant construction. The policies there are a little bit less restrictive. Mm -hmm. And so this ends up being a brown area. Why? Because they're in Texas. So it's sun year round. It's hot. Um, it takes more money to like be watering like all those areas to like grow crops and stuff than it would be like in California where like it would take a lot less. So it ends up costing the environment and the people a lot more to live in these brown areas like Texas where versus like California where it would cost less because like you wouldn't need to um, use as much materials and everything. And so I thought that that was like a really kind of cool um, thought to have like how it's better to build in greener areas than it is to in brown areas and then he also brought up the point that um, living in more dense areas is better because of like carbon emissions because then you if you're close to everything you're going to commute um, by a bicycle by a like public transportation instead of having to drive an hour 30 minutes to work somewhere else because then in that he like gave a little example of like a family generally who has to like commute to work would end up like spending a thousand dollars, no, not a thousand, like a thousand gallons of gas. Whereas when they live in a more densely populated area, it would only be like eight hundred fifty. So think about this: I have five drivers right now. So because I, I I'm still paying for my daughter that's here, she pays her car payment. 
but I pay for her gas pretty much and her insurance. So our insurance right now is just the insurance for the five vehicles, $1,000 a month. Then I have two car payments. My car's paid for. Then you got all the gas. You start to add all that up. So not even the environmental impact, but just like the cost of, of the car-centered culture of living where we live. You have to have a car. So, so then, you, then, you think about, then you think about like the, you know, living in a place like you know, downtown LA or, or, or Chicago or, or Manhattan. You, you can cut those. You don't have to have a car, right? But then in chapter seven, it talks about how most of these people are getting on the ferry in the cities, and then they're commuting. So then they end up. You still have a little bit of commute. Yeah. But he says you're almost losing two to three weeks a year in just commuting hours because of how much time you're like wasting getting over. So it's like you have like people that are walking forty minutes, or you have people that are driving like twenty minutes, and it's like like you're kind of. Yeah, and there is a. I mean, if you're if you live in Manhattan and you're taking the subway, there's still a you're still probably a twenty or thirty minute commute on the subway, but it's cheaper and it's more friendly for the environment. In that TED talk, you know, it showed the city and it was like, you know, as it gets out, it gets more and more red because of the emissions because people are driving into the city and there's less people. So it kind of goes along. But I think about that, like how much I spend on cars. I'm like, I could probably afford to live in Manhattan if I didn't have to pay for all this stuff. My big issue with it is I think it's just judging all people as being very simple in their desires and things. Like the quote, if you love nature, then like live in a city, I completely disagree with because like here's the issue. Like if you love nature, most likely you are an outdoorsman. Like you go hiking, you go fishing, you go hunting, you do things like that, which if you're living in a big city, you're gonna have to like transport to get to where you wanna do your activities. You're going to have to drive farther, then you have to have a car. There's not going to be a bus that's going to drop you off at, like, the LM land. Like, you yeah. know, like, so it's just, like, assuming that everyone's goal is just to, like, work all the time, <laughs> like, and then well, there aren't any outdoorsmen. Well, it's like telling you, like, okay, if you love something, you have to give it up, basically. Well, no, because I think he's defending the fact that as more people go, like, people are terrible. They, they trash things, like, they leave trash, they, like, you know... They, yeah, it's like the fire example. Yeah, they burn time. fires, and so it's like they are ruining the environment in their own way just by being there. And it's not really like, oh, like, stay out of it because of that. It's more like... Well, I think he's, he's trying to just defend cities, really. Yeah. Well, I feel like people who are trashing nature, like, if they're going out and going camping and, like, just being reckless and leaving out all their trash, then, like, they don't actually love nature. So it's like... But like the sprawl, like the sprawl, like the, I mean, I think he's right about that. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I mean, it's, he's interesting because he's, I mean, his, his politics, you can tell from re reading the book, he's, he's sort of, he's sort of right on economic issues and then on the environment he's left. Right. So that's kind of interesting. But, um, again, I think it's, there's a happy medium, um, on, on the environmental issue too, but like all the, all the building everywhere probably, you know, and I think we, as we can be good stewards of the environment. Um, I certainly brought up as someone who lives in Idaho brought up that way and not, you don't have to go wreck the environment to enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's any getting around like, you know, the building and the building and, you know, tearing up mountains for mining and things like that. That's just not good for the environment. It just is. But so you want to, so you try to find a, you've got to find a, 
a place there where you're doing a little bit of both again. I, I, you guys hate that answer, but I mean, it's t like Teddy Roosevelt, sort of my model on the environment, you know, other than I wouldn't go around killing exotic animals. Um, you know, he's a pretty good, he, he wanted to enjoy the environment, but was a pretty good steward of the environment and believed in preservation. And, and he set up the national park system. And so, so it's a pretty good mix of things, but. Yeah, and I think he's not like completely saying like, you know, stay out of it, like do not like you know, Yeah, I'm not sure he's saying that. Yeah, that's not like at least what I understood from it. Like he even proposes like how people have tried to find solutions to it by like building parks. Like you have um uh that Grand Central Park in New York City, you know, like people want to be close to nature, but like maybe perhaps the way that we sometimes think about going about it isn't the correct way or like the best way to preserve our environment. Um so, like, since he proposes that, like, question of, like, why is it better to be in these, like, more popular, um, dense areas, uh, why, why don't we, like, why don't we live in more, like, populated, dense areas? Like, why or do people choose to go live out in the country, like, far from other people? He'd rather drive everywhere. I'd rather kill the environment than be happy. <laughs> 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 I don't care if my kids are. <laughs> yeah, I Americans, it is interesting because I think you're right, Sierra. I think there is a pretty good. I mean, the American dream was sort of have your own house on your own property, but there's a there's a there's a good amount of people that prefer to live in cities too. Uh, so you have a mix. Where in some places, I I think it's definitely more. Some countries are a little more urban centered. Like I think about Asia. Not that there aren't country estates and people living in the country in Asia, but there's a lot, there's a little more focus on the city, it seems like. Yeah. It's like how they express their wealth, too, because you have like, you know, those really big penthouses, but then you also have really big houses on land and property. You can tell from either one of those, wow, this person has a lot of wealth and they're expressing it through what they choose to buy. I mean, it's really the car and the federal highway system made it so that you could live wherever you wanted to, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you could just drive. The wheel. Fourth fault. So some of the reasons why um, the reading said was like overcrowding, so like meet people, gotta be close to people all the time. Um, also, like they don't build much, so like California, they don't build much. So what happens? Prices go up. Um, protecting more land, and then like expensive environmental policies. Um, and so I really like the reading about the Livingstone and um, Prince Charles. 
mm. and how uh, they have very different mindsets of like how to build and how to alter communities. Prince Charles had like a vision of like rural and traditional and like kind of going back to like the simple ways kind of like we talked about and um, Ken Livingstone had the idea of like vision of uh, being more like modern and urban and radical and he even imposed like a tax on drivers like there would be like corridors but like you would have to pay like five dollars to like drive there and then that would actually like, dollars and in the long run it actually like ended up um, preventing like a lot of congestion I thought was really cool. Um, so then he kind of brings up the idea of how like smart environmentalism needs to raise incentives. Because um, like that's something that we talk a lot more in the community and society, how like we need to protect our planet and we need to be more conscious of like the things that we consume and what we promote for other people to consume as well. But it's hard to do that when um, you're not kind of taking care of those things yourself. Like it's so easy to tell other people, like, hey, stop buying reusable masks and just buy one that you can wash because it's not sure you find. But then I've got one too, so like, you know, kind of defeats the purpose. Um, <laughs> we all do, kind of, yeah. And so um, that's kind of like what I took away from like that chapter eight was just how like cities need to not only focus on the people and everything, but also on like how they are affecting the environment. Because if we don't, then in the long run, that turns into like more costs, more expenses for the people. Because right now, like we're used to the environment that we live in, we're used to having to commute, and we're used to um, having to buy more clothes because we're cold here. However, as the planet and the environment changes, and we get more of these um, changes, then we end up having to also change ourselves and we have to end up having to readapt to our environment and readapt to everything else. so that ends up being like more costly so i think that's interesting like perhaps not the extreme of you know let's just leave everything behind and leave nature alone but be a little bit more conscious of the policies that we do implement within our cities um and then just real quick on chapter nine um i love this reading i love like going through the different cities that it listed and just seeing like why they thrive. Um, the quote that I really liked from that was that there is no such thing as a successful city without clean capital. And so um, I just wanted to kind of pose these questions of like, how do cities attract talents? Like what do you think cities do to attract some talent? Well, I have a question first. Oh yeah. Has anybody been to Tokyo? Right? Doesn't it seem fa doesn't it seem fabulous? Like I have this I have this YouTube channel that I listen to music on, and they do a thing where they instead of they, they tell you like the song and stuff, but they have either someone driving and you see the video of the driver, or you have people walking around in different cities all over the world. And man, every time they go to Tokyo and they're just walking around, I'm like, man, I gotta go there. The Seems fabulous. The Lo-Fi channel. Yes. yes. Yeah. You listen to that? Yeah. It's awesome, right? It's so cool. Yeah, it's like it's like they play like indie music. Yeah, it's super cool. Yeah, but so so you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, every time they every time they, like somebody's walking around Tokyo, I'm like, man, that looks awesome. It looks exactly like super dense, lots of yeah, lots of like cool things, uh, restaurants, and and my I had a cousin. My cousin actually served a mission there. But anyways, I was just wondering if anybody had been there. Actually, it looks like we might be short on time, so I'm just gonna go ahead and move forward with the activity. And then we're going to talk a little more about that. But um, basically, I just want to build off Sierra's activity. 
This is like phase two of the first activity. Oh my goodness. What they already did. And then I want you to come up with a plan on having one environmental policy and then including um, a goal or like a plan on how you're going to attract new capital. So just like two things, like some kind of environmental thing to help the environment. I think some of us kind of already had some ideas on that. And then the second one is like what, how your city is going to directly attract new capital. And I mean, you can draw from like these cities that were in the region so you're in competition for young people in particular yeah and how are you going to get these folks to come to your city you want the hipsters beard oil you need beard oil that's what you need don't sleep don't sleep on beard oil it's fabulous you were you were you were with these guys? Oh. So want to join us? Yeah. Come on over, boss. Welcome to Rose Tropolis. I'm the mayor. What your woes will be like. So. My idea was yeah. like thinking about something that you can combine the two or basically you know, business builds off of preserving the environment and something like capital wise. I think a lot of people well like you know like ten trees that the hacking kind of ten trees that every had you buy they plant ten trees. And so you can have something where basically a lot of people always like want to feel good about themselves and so there's something
We have a The canal system. 
because we're gonna get rid of all cars and all streets and just put in canals so people have to row down it. And that'll also bring people capital because people want to live in this city that's kind of like a new Venice. New Venice. Yeah. I called it a Well, I think, I think, like, I like how he, you can't do it all, right? So it's kind of like what we did in the activities. You got to, like, pick and choose, like, so to have a theme, are we going to be kind of, I mean, all, all cities have to have certain things in common, but they can't, there still needs to be, like, a focus. So I like how he kind of talked about those different themes when you're thinking about cities. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. I think he says, like, the quote is, like the key to success is unique for every city, but yeah. the key to failure is the same for every city. So yeah, I love that. Like, and to be a little bit unique, like your city should be a little unique and have maybe a different culture. And I mean, there's some things that, like, good food is an easy one, right? If you have lots of restaurants and good food, people, that's one thing you, that all cities probably need, right? But. You know, like I think about P Portland. You guys know that Portland. I know some people hate Portland, but like Portland's like a city that public administrators like 
kind of love. But like for Portland, it's it's experimentalism and being a little strange and weird and and having a lot of event. You know, do you know that Portland has more bars than any other per capita than any other place in the United States, and and lots of restaurants and and so there's a definite like for Portland, there's a definite kind of culture about that place. And I think whether you're trying to do it like Portland does it or or like Seattle does it, or but you should have a unique feel to it, right? But so I, I don't know how I don't know how you do that, but that's that's kind of the aim. Anybody hate Portland? <laughs> I mean, Portland was doing doing skinny streets and and bike lanes before anybody, really. So a lot of the stuff that cities are experimenting with now, Portland did 20, 30 years ago. Lead with the lead with the food. Lead with the food. Lamb vindaloo. I think like the most um, like that I never thought about 